This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. At the top of the show, Michael Babcock was asking us about, you know, that kind of tough time you might have when you know as you hit the air, oh, I don't have it today. Oh, my goodness. Of course, <laughs> and liken it to sports, I'll always do that, Grant, one way or another. But, Grant, for you, again, in liken it to sports, you know, you get these guys who have to always be in game-ready performance shape, all set to go in case there's some injuries that befall the team. Well, you, we've asked, Grant, be always ready. Just assume something's going to happen to one of these clowns and they're going to be gone. Is that you finding that hard? Because you got to schedule really, your day out. Yeah, it's really exciting. But when I expressed interest and started going through the training for for co-hosting, I had a few people uh, who I know personally are just like, are you sure this is what you want, Grant? Like, there's going to be a lot more pressure, you know? Um, but ultimately, it's it's a heck of a lot of fun. Hanging out with you guys. Oh, Always good. Always a good day. Awesome. Awesome, sir. Well, we appreciate it. And it's certainly comforting because, you know, sometimes we figure, well, you know, I, I better go. I better get in there. And we've had some wonderful success with with uh, other backup co-hosts that we've had. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Margaret, uh, Brock, and the lady we're bringing on now who talks <laughs> with us every Monday. We call the segment Know Your Rights. It's Danielle McLaughlin. Did you know that everyone has rights? No matter who we are, we all qualify. But what happens when freedoms collide? The answers are rarely simple, but always interesting. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, to talk about civil liberties and human rights on Know Your Rights. So many things we learn about, so many things we get to discover via these conversations, get educated about, and mostly informed one way or another. And of course, always bringing somebody wonderful on to talk, Danielle McLaughlin. Welcome back. Thank you. Lovely to see you guys together again today. And I am very pleased because we have another special guest today. Uh, his name is Nima Shirali. And like our own pro bono students Canada volunteer, Ashani Pires, Nima is a second year law student at Osgoode Hall Law School as well. Uh, Nima has chosen to do a clinic placement this year with Osgoode's Innocence Project, and we're going to learn a lot more about that. Welcome, Nima. Thank you very much, Daniel. I appreciate your invitation. Uh, it's delightful to have you with us. Now, can you tell us a bit about the Innocence Project and what you're doing there? Yes. So the Innocence Project was established in 1992 at the Cardozo School of Law by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. And the emphasis there was on uh, focusing on DNA testing, post-conviction DNA testing, um, in cases where wrongful convictions uh, were suspected. And uh, since then, the project has spread uh, to various uh, chapters. And uh, the Osgood Innocence Project was Canada's first innocence project established in this country. And... um, what I'm doing there, just like uh, every other student that is placed within the clinic, uh, we first receive uh, doctrinal or theoretical training uh, within the uh, the first part of the clinic. Uh, and uh, after that, we have an opportunity to apply what we've learned in, uh, in an actual case or in a number of files. That is, we'll take a, a, a particular uh, file where um, new evidence may shed light on uh, 
the integrity of the person's conviction, and then we'll follow that up to see whether we could uh, apply for a ministerial review to have that conviction reviewed. So this is a real hands-on piece of work that you're doing. I, I mean, you learn the theory, but uh, you're working towards helping somebody who's been wrongfully convicted. This is, in my view, an extremely important uh, effort. Now, some of us are, are puzzled. Why is it that there even are wrongful convictions? How do they happen? Uh, that's a, an important question. There are several systemic causes um, and if we look at uh, the uh, literature where we could actually scan the studies that have been conducted to address that very question, we see that the principal cause has been mistaken eyewitness identification. And uh, uh, I think a very good place to begin for anyone interested is by looking at uh, um, uh, Judge, Judge Jerome Frank's book published in 1957 entitled Not Guilty. And uh, in that book, Judge Frank points out um, uh, that uh, sometimes what is lost in memory is often replaced by uh, what he refers to as the products of imagination. Hmm. And um, he points out that honest bias actually could come in to fill in the gaps of memory. So uh, if a particular event occurs and... Um, a, a person um, tries their best to recollect what has occurred. Um, the question there is uh, whether their mm, their honest bias could lead to what uh, Judge Frank refers to as uh, uh, unconscious prejudice in the trial. Yeah. Uh, so you, what it you does, may be sure that you saw something, but you may also be wrong. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. And uh, the, the witness that is testifying in a trial is under oath or solemn affirmation, and uh, their their conscience is bound to tell the truth, and they are convinced that they are telling the truth. But uh, the question is, is the evidence reliable? And much of the time, the evidence is not reliable, and that leads to wrongful convictions. But What are uh, some of the uh, other reasons that, that a person might be wrongfully convicted? Another cause is uh, false confessions. So a, a person is being interrogated by a police officer in relation to a crime, and uh, they actually confess to something that they did not do, right? Why and would somebody under... do that? I mean, I, it, it's are... very hard for most of us to imagine that any of us would confess to a crime that we had not committed. Why would? What are the possible reasons for that? And therein lies the problem, because for the trier of fact— a confession is extremely persuasive, mm -hmm. if not decisive, for them to reach their verdict. There are various reasons for that. And uh, actually, one of the cases that the Osgood Innocence Project has worked on has, has involved um, a false confession. Um, one reason, uh, regrettably, is that uh, the person being interrogated actually psychologically becomes demoralized. They fall apart after six, seven, 10, 11 hours of being interrogated. And uh, they are told things like, as long as you say you did it, you can go home. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, being in that state of being demoralized, they just say that they have uh, committed something that they did not do just because they want that ordeal to end. Um, that's, that's, that's one reason. Another reason could be someone 
covering for someone else that uh, unfortunately happens uh, within a lot of uh, cases where there are groups involved or there have been a number of people involved in an offense and one person will take the blame for another. But ultimately, it still is a wrongful conviction. That is that uh, the actual perpetrator of the offense is uh, uh, does not meet justice. The wrong person is being punished and the victim or the victims of the crime uh, there's also an injustice imposed on them. And so no matter what the cause of the false confession, ultimately the result is the same. And that is the wrong person is being punished. Yeah, boy, that, it, it, it's, it's hard to get your mind around these things happening. I guess a lot of people would assume that um, the person who confesses to a crime they hadn't committed had been coerced to do that. But in, in your scenario, that's not always the case. The um, are there people who believe that they may have committed a crime when they, in fact, have not? Uh, that is a very interesting question. Um, it, 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 that certainly is possible. Uh, it, in, in, in one of the cases that the Osgood Innocence Project has been involved in, uh, that the person confessed to having committed the crime um, and, uh, and then recanted. But uh, uh, but but that had no effect, unfortunately, on his ultimately being convicted. And then there were various reasons uh, over the years uh, provided for why that had happened. One of the reasons uh, was a, a, a psychologically related reason uh, uh, the, they, that that the person actually may have had uh, some kind of antisocial disorder, and uh, they may have uh, uh, confessed falsely in order to. You know, feel important or feel, um, uh, uh, you know, a sense of importance, essentially. Socially. Well, I guess it would make you the uh, center of attention if you confess to a crime, whether or not you actually committed it. This, these are these are troubling thoughts. Now, the Innocence Project at, at Osgood has been running for quite some time. Do you know how many innocent people have been cleared by its work? Uh, well, there's two two examples that uh, come to mind, at least, and uh, these are the two that uh, uh, that 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 are spoken about within uh, within the uh, the people that are involved in, in in innocence and investigating potential wrongful convictions. Um, uh, so there are at least two that come to mind. Yes, uh, the case of Romeo Filion and uh, Gary Staples. So, can you tell us a bit about one of those cases? So Romeo Filion, uh, first of all, these were both murder murder cases. Uh, one occurred in 1971. Um, uh, that was Gary Staples, and then a year later in 1972, Romeo Filion was uh, was convicted. Uh, Romeo Filion, uh, uh, there were two problems with that case. Number one, uh, it was ultimately revealed, and this is what led to the Crown uh, withdrawing the charges, was that uh, within the police file, there was actually a uh, statement made by a detective uh, confirming that he had a verified alibi and that he could not have been in Ottawa, which is where the crime was uh, perpetrated at the time that it was that it was committed. Uh, but uh, that memo was uh, very regrettably not admitted into evidence. It was not even tendered. It was just sitting in his file. And uh, it was not until... Uh, Many years later, after um, he'd served about a quarter century in prison, uh, that uh, uh, that his parole officer discovered this evidence, and so um, uh, it's it was 
that was one part of the problem that uh, it was not disclosed that uh, that he had a verified alibi and the other part was that he falsely confessed and this was the example that i had mentioned earlier uh, that he confessed and then he recanted um and uh, so he so, confessed uh, even though he had an alibi for the the, the time that, that the crime was committed wow. that is correct that is correct and uh, when the police uh, asked him to reincant uh, or reenact mm -hmm. uh, what had happened uh, that is, uh, you know, he he mentioned that uh, he could take the police to a particular bridge where he uh, disposed of uh, his bloodied clothing after he had perpetrated the crime, and he was uh, he was unable to do that. He was unable to lead them there, and he led to a particular place where uh, it was it just made no physical sense where that could have happened. Um, and uh, unfortunately, still he ultimately served 31 years in prison before wow. uh before the uh crown decided to uh, withdraw the charges and that was of course done with uh, the help of uh, about 40 osgood students in in a five-year period uh, this is this is so, you know it's it, it took an awfully long time but it's good to know that at the end of the day that project did its work it is the law school project linked with the non-profit organization innocence canada Yes, we uh, collaborate. Uh, in fact, a number of my colleagues are uh, are doing their placement with Innocence Canada. Uh, with this particular case that I have indicated, Romeo Filion, when uh, the application for ministerial review happened, and I'll just explain quickly what that is. Uh, since uh, 1892, the Minister of Justice has had uh, the power to review convictions in this country. Uh, uh, and the principal concern there has been uh, to determine whether there has been what is called a miscarriage of justice. And uh, so if, if, if all the appeals have been exhausted, as was the case with uh, Filion, that is, his case went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1977, and the Supreme Court dismissed his appeal. Uh, in that case, then uh, we have to do a ministerial a minister an application for ministerial review under Section 696 of the Criminal Code, and when that was done in this case, the Osgood Hall, uh, the Osgood Innocence Project, collaborated with Innocence Canada to do that. So they did that together. Okay. So there's a very close relationship uh, between. Well, that's two. really good to know that people are working in concert. You know, this is a serious problem. How, in your opinion, could we prevent wrongful convictions from happening in the future? Uh, I think that. Uh, well, this very program here is uh, evidence that uh, this is a, 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 a great start, I could say. I mean, what you're doing here is very important. It is raising awareness. Uh, the members of the jury in any future criminal proceedings are extracted from the citizenry. It's important that uh, the uh, citizenry know of this problem. Um, so that's one part, is to raise awareness. Second, from the perspective of lawyering, especially from the perspective of the defense lawyer, uh, these cases that I have indicated uh, clearly demonstrate that uh, effective lawyering is absolutely key and it could be um, uh, really, mm, it could help determine a person's fate. And so in this particular case, diligent lawyering means that we must make sure that all key information is disclosed uh, and it is tendered and, and 
it is part of the trial. And, well, uh, Nima, I think that this is, you know, one of the things that Nima told me, Kelly, that uh, I would like to share is that this is the kind of work he plans to go into once he's graduated from law school and starts practicing law. And I think that we all should feel a little safer with people like Nima Shirali taking on this kind of extremely important work. I think it's uh, a, a real plus to know that there are people like you, Nima, who are aware of what's happening and are out there working to make sure that more wrongful convictions don't occur. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Danielle, for your invitation. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. That was In Osgood Hall law student Nima Shirali talking with us today about wrongful convictions and his work on the Innocence Project. You know, Danielle, I always love the fire that um, that people have. You never know what is going to intrigue someone, what is going to hit that validation button, and I really love that. And it's discussions like that where you hear about a person's process and their desires. Thank you very much for bringing forward. We'll talk with you next week on more Know Your Rights. Thank you. Danielle McLaughlin is here every Monday on the program. Excuse me, correct myself. We'll talk to Danielle in two weeks on Know Your Rights. We are not here next Monday on the program. But we are here, Grant and I, after the break to tell you what's coming up tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown. Preview our program and our closing moment. So don't, folks, do me a favor. Don't hop away. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.